May we acknowledge this unknown to shift our perspective of what we do know, that love is still here, that grace is still here, that joy is still here, that none of this is in vain, that we can still make something out of this pain time and time again. A leader who loves well leads well. The important connection between love and leadership is not discussed nearly enough. And unburdened leaders truly know they are loved and are generous with themselves and those they lead because of that love. They do not hide their humanity, their fears, their lack of certainty or knowing. Sure, they have boundaries, but they're not hiding from themselves or those closest to them. And when we carry unaddressed burdens, we armor up and look successful on the outside while really we're just trying to hide our unacknowledged pain. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. So many leaders are hiding their pain in plain sight. They're hiding behind a mirage of polished, deflecting the truth for fear of losing love, belonging, respect, or reputation all really important things. Not feeling loved or believing you're truly lovable as you are leads to making choices to fit in or power over instead of navigating the vulnerability of being seen as a deeply human being. Broken hearts, broken trust, broken connections all lead to protecting that hides your humanity and also your superpower, you. And leaders can be especially good at hiding from love and all the vulnerability it brings in ways that look deceptively bold. And this can be a dangerous contagion, encouraging others to also hide behind the protectors of hubris, individualism, perfectionism, hustle. Hiding your pain can become a full-time job that never has time off for fear of being found out. And hiding your pain is exhausting Hiding your fears keeps you locked up into keeping up appearances. Hiding your truth keeps you feeling like a fraud. And sometimes there's been so much time spent hiding and being who you think you should be, you forget who you are or what you value, what you believe. Many of us were taught how not to be open to love. And maybe this is just a Gen X cynical generation thing, but I have a feeling it's all generations because love is scary. The message we heard was loving was weak, soft, and that love got in the way of how to get ahead or not giving any Fs hides the need for love. Cynicism and a fractured, even distorted view of love impacts how we see ourselves and lead others. These ways of protecting can crush your spirit, weigh you down, and cause you to lose your connection to who you really are. Being able to receive love is foundational to being able to love and lead others well. This means moving through discomfort by feeling through it instead of letting the protectors fueled by fear hide your humanity. My guest today is a force of love towards herself and others in both words and actions. She rose from the lies that she breathed in as a young woman and full body embrace the love she was craving and no longer hides, even when she feels the risk of rejection or being misunderstood. Ariel Astoria is truly a Renaissance woman, a poet, author, speaker, creative. She lights up any room as an MC or event host, a body positive model, and an actor. Ariel has shared her work with companies such as Google, Sofer Sounds, Lululemon, Dress Ember, TEDx, and more. Ariel's first EP, a collection of music and poetry called Symphony of a Lioness and her single Magic are available on iTunes or Apple Music. She is co-author to two collections of poetry, Vagabonds and Zealots and Write Bloody Spill Pretty, which can both be found on Amazon. Now, I first met Ariel at a conference where she was an MC, a tour de force of love from the stage. I immediately started to follow her work and was moved by her ability to put words to the steady tension of loving ourselves so we can lead ourselves and others well. 
pay attention to the toxic impact modesty culture has had on Arielle and how she discovered her power in her body through acting, performing spoken word poetry, modeling, and calling BS on practices and businesses that do not value all bodies. And for my Enneagram 4 listeners, this will be a special treat for you to listen to as Ariel weaves in her own unburdened leader story with her journey as an Enneagram 4. And now I am thrilled to welcome you to my Unburdened Leader conversation with Ariel Astoria. Welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Ariel Astoria, thank you so much for joining me. I'm honored you are here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Ah, So I want to just jump right in and go back in time. I want to go back to high school. (laughs) And I know we're going to, we're going to go right in. And and I've heard, I've heard you say, you know, you, you, you grew up in this beautiful home. You're the oldest of five kids. Um, Parents empowered you. Um, But you've written and spoken about that you didn't grow up valuing your voice and your body, which, which struck me as you're a spoken word poet, a model, a <laughs> prolific writer of beautiful words. Thank you. Um, can you tell me more about the burdens you were carrying at this time that led to these beliefs and, and specifically things that were said or done or seen or heard that you internalized? Yeah, I think a lot of it, um, a lot of the burden probably purely comes down to um, a really deep set insecurity that I still am navigating through how it got there. Um, Because like you said, my parents have always encouraged me. My dad is a dad of mostly girls. So he's always been the one to be like, Hmm. you're beautiful. Um, You know, or, or if we wore dresses and things like that, and we started to grow and develop, it would be a very, you know, off-putting thing for him that he would still be like, oh, that's nice. You know, like he still um, was in that space. And so I didn't, I, and my mom is like very, like, I remember, very distinctly trying on a prom dress and I felt like there was too much cleavage in it. I was like, no, I can't wear this. And I, I freaked out. My mom was like, stop being your grandma. Like, it looks fine. Your boobs look great. And I was just like, so, you know, so I grew up with very interesting, you know, dynamics and still very much so the modesty culture. And I think, um, that whole concept of, of modesty, I really ingrained and I, um, I took probably to an extreme, if you will, um, this concept of, of um, not revealing too much of yourself for other people, um, this concept of, of keeping some something sacred and, and set apart. Um, I kind of just like took it all and I was like, well, what if nobody sees anything <laughs> is kind of how I interpreted it. Um, and I also like just for my my body type alone, my dad is six four, six three, six four. My 14 year old brother is now six two and wears like a size 13 shoe. So I come from very big jeans uh, (laughs) and uh, pun intended. And so I have like, my dad is an ex football player. I have his thighs, just like very sturdy thighs. And I always felt bigger than most of my friends. We grew up in a predominantly white area when I was in middle school. So all my friends were, were tiny and blonde and blue eyes. And, um, I, I didn't look like any of that. Um, and so I kind of set up this norm in my head of like, well, the boys like girls who look like that, you know, and for me, they just kind of poked fun at me. Um, and I remember in, in elementary school, having a, a, a boy like asked to see like my boobs because they didn't look like um, the way the other girls looked because I was way more developed. And that was kind of always the case for me. I was always like developedly one step ahead of people physically. And so with uniforms and things like that, I couldn't wear the skirts, you know, mm. um, I, I had to wear boy pants um, because I couldn't fit a lot of the girl size pants and things like that. And so all of these little um these little things started to, to, uh, to sit deeply, if you will. Um, and so when I got to middle school, it was just like, just hide, you know, that's, that's the safest thing I felt like I could do. Um, not draw attention to myself, not, um, cause any, you know, um, uproar around me. And so I, I hid, I had a very vocal best friend in fifth grade who we are actually still friends and both engaged, which is really fun right now. Um, Hmm. and, and she was my mouthpiece, you know, she would tell people I was hurt or she would communicate, you know, on behalf of me. Cause I just felt so I had, I had shrunken myself in internally so much that I just, you know, stayed there. Um, and it really wasn't until 
I, I started doing theater that I kind of opened up a little bit, but it was safe to do so because I wasn't opening up as myself. I was opening up as other people. Um, so there was this weird permission wow. of finding myself in, in these character shoes and in these character personalities and being able to step into that confidently um, because it didn't feel like me. Um, I'm, I'm being a character, you know, as vocal and as, uh, and so once I stepped into those roles, a whole different part of me took place. And then um, I transferred to uh, arts high school in my 10th grade year. And that's when everything kind of switched. I was like, what? There's a whole school of people who are just as weird or tall or small or big as I am. And there was more diversity. And so I really found myself in the theater space, but I also found myself, oh, there are other people who don't just look like one way. Um, and that really shifted um, that insecurity for me because I, I felt less alone. I think my insecurity when it first started was just like, I'm the only one who looks and feels this way. Um, and that sucks. And and then finding that solidarity in other people um, kind of helped boost my confidence a little. That's powerful. You named modesty culture, and mm. I often will address it as purity culture too. Mm-hmm. Um, and And it has a lot of double binds and a lot of hypocrisy and different rules for men, different rules for women. And I'm, I've in my clinical work and in my leadership work, I'm seeing this collective hangover (laughs) from the damage of these. I I'm going to be generous with these well-intentioned messages, but I'm even not feeling great about saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you, yeah. Can you go a little deeper on, on the modesty culture? Cause you talked about how you, you, modesty for you, you took it to the extreme and said, I'm going to hide. Um, and if I'm not seen and that, that it almost felt justified, those are my words. So tweak that Mm -hmm. if that's not accurate and, and yeah, the echoes, can you keep going a little bit more with that? Cause I think that's powerful. Well, I think everything about me and, and now it makes a lot more sense knowing the world that I'm in of modeling and speaking and poetry and Instagram. Um, I'm, I was never made, uh, to hide. (laughs) I was never made to, to be small, you know? And so, um, when I take messages, you know, and like purity culture and I'm like, you know, modestus hottest, I, I just took that as well, me and my essence already knows. I know that was a fun one. Um, me and my essence already knows I can't hide, you know, I can't be small. And that's how I interpreted, um, what those messages were implying, you know, hide until it's time not to, you know, or don't draw attention to yourself until it's time to. And I, I didn't know when, when that crossover happened. So I just was like, well, let me just stay over here, you know, on this side of hiding. Um, because I don't think me and who I've been built physically, emotionally and spiritually, um, can suppress that. Um, so I guess I'll just shut it off. You know, I guess I'll just turn it off. And so um, for me, like, I get, I think, like you said, you know, very well-intentioned, um, just the wrong, um, scapegoat, <laughs> the wrong, um, the, the wrong, um, distribution of, um, of what it meant to value these homes that we live in, um, and, and protect and remind ourselves that they're sacred. Um, somehow that got messed up. Um, somehow we forgot that we were very good from the beginning of things. And so, Mm. um, that's kind of like what the work eventually I started to do. But in that moment, it was just like, okay, I clearly can't hide. Um, it was seventh grade that I did a performance for history class actually, which is where I found my love for theater. And we had to perform part of Midsummer's Night's Dream by Shakespeare for our class. And, my teacher made me Helena part two and I played that <laughs> role to the T and I got to lay on the ground with my uh, crush at the time because he's Demetrius and it was wonderful. And so um, I remember afterwards, my mom telling me much later that my teacher had gone up to her and, and said, you have to put her in the arts like that. She shouldn't have done that the way she did it. Um, she has a gift and you guys need to pay attention to it. And so then from there, it, it, I went to, you know, to the art school, but even in that space of like, I, I still only felt I could expose those parts of myself or open up those parts of myself while in, um, the protection of being someone else, not being myself. Um, 
I could step into this character's shoes and I can be bold and loud and crazy, um, maybe flirty or funny. Um, but then once I step out of those shoes, I go back to being Ariel, you know, humble, reserved, um, and, and, and quiet for, for a while until I wasn't, you know? Um, and so for me, I think I, I know that there was good intent there and I took that good intent and I was like, okay, well, none of that makes sense to me. Like I can't just throw on a big t-shirt and then, you know, be modest because I am way more developed than most of my friends. So I have to just take all of me, um, and kind of cover it in a big t-shirt um, because I don't know how much is too too much and how much is is too little. So I'll just stay hidden. You know, that's kind of what that looks like for me. Um, and and those little what I don't even remember what I called them. Um, the little whispers, the little the little triggers, if you will. Um, we're just again that constant comparison, um, which I really now is very ingrained in my Enneagram four ness of just always feeling that I I won't be the next person. Um, I won't measure up how other people measure up, um, and and really putting that pressure on myself uh, to be more and to be less at the same time, which is a really interesting paradigm to try and live in. There's um, this is a strong statement, but there's, as I'm sitting here listening to this, not only as a trauma informed psychotherapist and business coach, but as a mother to Mm. a daughter, there's a violence in that message of be more and be less. There's a, it's, it is insidious. Um, Mm. And I've, I, again, circling back to when I first saw you, I was at a conference and you were emceeing this conference, Yellow Co conference. Mm-hmm. We love yellow. Yeah. And I'm listening to you share now and feeling what I'm feeling and seeing and then putting that up the backdrop mm-hmm. of this memory of this woman who took up space mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually, physically, energetically with joy, mm-hmm. with confidence, with power. Yeah. Um and and Knowing the world we live in, knowing billions of dollars are made by having us feel like we're not enough. Mm-hmm. I I want, you know, you talked a little bit about this vice grip of, I mean, again, be more and be less. Yeah. Can you, can you dig a little deeper on some of these burdens of not enough? Cause I hear you talk about that in your poetry and in your speaking. Yeah. Um, what, can you go more into those specific not enoughs and how they continue to kind of take you out and keep you small, even, even after you got into the art school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't until I, I got to college where I really started to navigate through, I, I had gotten in that space where I could encourage others. I had gotten into the space where I, I knew I could be a hope for other people. So I would, I did that, you know, I reminded people that they're beautiful and that they're worthy and that they're enough. And it wasn't until I got to college and I was getting ready to um, be a resident advisor for a hall full of freshman girls um, that I kind of got checked on that um, because I was so quick to remind other people how beautiful and how enough and how courageous they are. And I never believed those things for myself. Um, And so on this training that we had to go on, which is a a 10 day backpacking trip and in the Yosemite. And I had never backpacked in my life. Um, Culturally, that's not a thing. My family, that's um, as, as we are. And so um, my mom is a glamper. We don't, we don't do uh, cabins unless they have a fireplace and a full on. I love your mom. (laughs) I'm with your mom. And so um, backpacking, I was like, what is that? You know, like what do we mean we're going to backpack? And so I went into anxiety mode just to da- tap into something that was one unfamiliar two so unfamiliar. I didn't feel like I was capable of doing it and doing it well. And going on this trip, you have to lead your team through one of your trails for one of the days. And at the end, share your, your life story and how you got to where you are at that moment. And I shared a lot about how anxious I was about this trip, how much I worked out out of fear and out of anxiety because I didn't think my physical body would be able to handle something that strenuous. And at the end of it, um, one of the guys on my team, he was just like, I, I can't wait for you to see yourself the way your creator sees you. And I was like, whoa. 
And that shifted everything for me because then the first question one of my girls asked me as we had tea um, in my in my um, my dorm room with them, and she was like, "How um, do you find value in yourself?" And I was like, "Oh, okay, this is the kind of year we're gonna have where this internal <laughs> work I'm doing myself. You're now like." broadcasting that. Um, and so we're all about to do this work, you know, and I told her, I said, I don't know, um, but we can figure it out together, you know, and it, it really came back to that moment and back to that conversation of like, can we see ourselves outside of ourselves? Um, and, and for me, like I was always raised to, my parents always reminded me, you're a leader, you know, um, you, you're a leader, which means you can't live the way everybody else lives. And there's responsibility on you that, you know, um, maybe other people don't have and, and, and you're, you're set apart and your name means Linus, you know, Linus of God. And so there's a, there's a strength that comes with that. So I had all these, you know, um, pre preconceived identity, um, set up of, of who and how I was supposed to orchestrate in this world. Um, and I think there's a level of it that was um, strengthening and encouraging to h- literally who I am today. My parents raised a whole lot of really dope people. And I say that as humbly as possible. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, there was still that pressure put there um, to be um, a certain way and to, to exist a certain way, which I love and also am, am navigating through. And so a lot of it came down to, okay, like I, I if I'm going to set this example, I have to also live this example. If I'm going to tell people that they're worthy and enough and valuable that I have to believe it too. And I have this poem that I made um, my students write and it was a, it's an about me poem. And I had them break down who they were in ingredients since. And so I wrote also because I I never wrote without having um, I never didn't write because I wanted to set the example for them, and so mine was I am one third poet I am two fourth perfectionist I am imperfect chaotic frazzled and indecisive I can be moody and negative self deprecating and hypocritical I advocate for the beauty and importance of everyone else and I sometimes I sometimes deny my own. I am often thinking that I won't measure up. I won't achieve any other level of success most days. Most days I feel like a fraud, like people will look behind my curtain and find a mess of a woman and they will not love me like still. And as as much as I've like done, you know, as much as I've accomplished or as many stages I've I've been on, there's still that little inkling, you know, that um that's cool, but like who are you? You know, um, Mm. that's cool, but like, and, you know, or that's cool, but is it glorifying, you know, to, to who I believe God to be, you know, that's cool, but, but for what, you know? And so that loop still plays in my head, um, very often. Um, and the comparison still plays and, and there's just something, um, there's like this stigma about like Enneagram fours that there's like a puzzle piece, and you're like, oh, it's like all together, except there's one piece that's not there. So it was almost perfect, but it's not. And that's just how fours feel most of the time. And, and it's pretty true. It's like, oh, I'm talented, sure. But there's always feels like there's still something missing. And I don't think there anything is. But that's how my brain and how my heart sometimes is wired. Um, that I that's feel exhausting. like I'm just enough until I'm not. Yeah. And I think I there are days where I'm like, no. I'm confident. I'm cool. I'm I'm this and this I'm talented. You know, I'm gifted. I don't like talented, but I'm gifted. Um, and, and I love well, and I, I make people feel, you know, good and enough and valuable. And those are good things, but there's still this like little silent whisper of like, but, and it never really completes itself. It's just there, you know? Um, and it, it does get pretty exhausting. And I don't know if that's like the oldest child in me. I don't know if that's like the, um, the setup or just like how I'm wired, but it's exhausting. And it, and it also is like internal work that I'm consistently doing um, and reminding myself of the truth of who I am and not that little nagging lie that sometimes sits there. When you talk about internal work that you're consistently doing, can you tell me more about, about your processes? Yeah. Practices there? Um, I remember when my fiance and I first started uh, dating um, we would talk about often of like finding, um, finding the lie, um, in the situation. So 
we would have nightmares because we both kind of felt like we weren't good enough for the other, which was really interesting. And um, so we would have dreams or nightmares about, you know, the other leaving. And I told him one day, I was like, um, find the lie um, and then find the truth. And that's where I'll meet you at the end of things. And so for me, the internal work is always that um, find the lie first um, and then counter that with the truth. So the lie, you know, is, is that I'm not, I don't have value as a person. Um, that's a lie. And I know that's a lie, you know, and then the truth is, um, I contribute something beautiful to this world. Um, and prayerfully, hopefully, even when I'm gone, I still am doing that. And um, that's the truth, you know, um, that's the hope at least, or, um, find the lie. I, I can't be loved well. I don't, I don't know how to love well. And, and, and the truth is I am in a beautiful relationship that's healthy. Um, and grounding and safe. Um, and it is a, it is a ebb and flow and a dance we have together. And that can't happen um, unless I am able to love well and then be loved well. And so that's kind of the loop um, that I play often in my head. And I'm all, I, I think often about like, when you sit in a room, like what is the thing you, you can't fully see all of, and it's yourself. Like you can see your, I can see my hands, I can see my feet. See my belly, you know, I can kind of see my shoulders, you know, but other than that, I can't see the fullness of who I am and constantly reminding myself of like, you can't even see the big picture about mm. who you are. Um, so you're only seeing snapshots, you're only seeing glimpses. Um, and that is the truth of I'm this, I'm that, I'm not this, I'm not that. You're like, but you're only seeing parts of you. Um, you're not seeing the whole of you. And so that is something I constantly come back to of like, what I'm seeing is not the full picture of who I am. What I'm seeing is not the full picture of the value um, that I sit in and that I have um, and constantly coming back and reworking that space in my head. That's beautiful. You know that feeling that just shuts you down when you're trying to do something new or risky or vulnerable, even though it's positive for bettering yourself or your business? or your relationships, or maybe you identify with one of these common beliefs, the persistent belief that challenges you and wonders, who do you think you are to be having this hard conversation or making a bold professional move? These beliefs leave you feeling like a fraud and afraid of being found out, or the belief you cannot do the new or hard thing good enough, perfect enough, so why even try or start? So the excuses and the doubt, the avoidance shows up and gets in the way of your flow. This is commonly known as resistance, and it is amazing how truly universal these feelings and beliefs are for those who do the uncertain and the unknown, which really is all of us. I mean, if I could get everyone in a room who says these things to me personally and professionally, we'd need a stadium. And resistance loves the known, and its number one job is to protect. And when it protects by having a show up in life hiding from our truth, it destroys our self-trust. When resistance leads, it's exhausting, it is unsustainable, it is soul-crushing. Popular approaches to dealing with resistance ask us to kill it, to crush it, to fight it, to will or think it away. But these only create more resistance instead of decreasing it. And in truth, these power over approaches to bullying our pain and shame does not work over the long haul. Instead of fighting resistance, the most effective approach to these feelings and beliefs involves choosing respect towards resistance instead, and even befriending these protective parts of our inner system. Addressing how resistance shows up in your life is essential for an unburdened leader. When you get curious about the protector of resistance and learn more about its intent and fears, it is easier to get to the root of what is feeling the resistance in your life, which is why I created Resistance Reframe, a free online interactive guide so you can change your perspective and approach towards resistance and experience less burnout, feel more clarity, and lead with more love. So go to rebeccaching.com backslash resistance, enter your email, and receive this free guide so you can rethink resistance and develop one of the powerful pillar practices of unburdened leaders. I want to circle back to when you read the I Am poem 
Mm-hmm. And I have the gift right now of seeing you and I was watching <laughs> you read that and I saw emotion flash mm-hmm. through you. And this is not a recent poem. It's something I could tell you you were citing from heart. Mm-hmm. What flashed through you right then when you were sharing those words right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done I, that poem I seen at the beginning of it. And so to just jump into just that one part and amongst this conversation um, was like a, I, a reminder of one in my head, I was back in a classroom, but it was empty, which is really interesting. Um, and, and the emotion that kind of, uh, flashed through is like, sometimes my own words speak back to me, um, which is kind of nice, I guess, as a poet, um, I'll read things I've written and I'll, and I'll cry, you know, a lot of it because I don't feel like all the time there are words that come from me. I really think it's a through me kind of thing. And so when I read things back, sometimes I feel like they're spoken back to me. Um, mm. And so as I, re- when I wrote that, you know, um, I'm moody, you know, self-deprecating. I don't know what kind of space I was in, in that moment, but I think that's the beauty about poems and performing is that I'll perform them. And sometimes I'll be in that space. Today, I don't I don't think I'm in that space. You know, I feel very, um, I don't feel very moody just day by day, but that's a given <laughs> to everything that's going on. Um, but I don't feel super de- self-deprecating right now. In this moment, I'm trying to be super gentle um, with myself and super tender with myself. Um, and even this morning of like working out and what is the balance of pushing myself and also just laying on my mat, because I think that's what my body needs right now, you know, and, and that's enough, you know, and, um, and showering and putting on clothes and just like really small things to be super gentle with myself. And so I, I think I, uh, adapted a new tenderness to that poem a little mm. bit, um, than I, than I have before. Ah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I also want to circle back to this whisper that you're talking about, the the yeah, mm-hmm. but when you, you claim a truth about you mm-hmm. and you and you have this part of you and the way I actually conceptualize that, believe it or not, as a protective part that there's this mm-hmm. part of you wants to keep you small, doesn't mm-hmm. want you to be too powerful to take mm-hmm. up too much space. I make up that that is where you can get hurt. Right. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you lead that part when it comes up, this yeah, but part, um, how do you lead it? How do you connect with it? I think the yeah, but comes from this instilling of like, you're, you're great, but it's only because of something else, you know? Um, mm, for me, that was a minimizer. Yeah. Um, and it was always supposed to be like, uh, the, the attention is not supposed to go to you. You know, the glory is not supposed to go to you and things like that. And, then you step into an art profession and and you're on stage, you know, and people are applauding because of you and they announce your name. And so trying to do that work of like, yeah, but it's not about me. Yeah. But the attention doesn't go to me and, and really navigating that. And so I think that, yeah, but is like, okay. Um, but how can we funnel that so that it points to something mm-hmm. bigger? Um, but how can we funnel it so it's just not you getting attention and that's cool, but it lasts for a second, you know, and and that's not really um, creating anything with longevity. Um, and and so doing that, but also trying not to diminish the yeah of it, you know, um, of yeah, I am gifted, <laughs> but it can go somewhere else, you know, um, of, yeah, I can, you know, receive a comment or an applause and, and, and it doesn't, I mean, I'm, I think I've gotten pretty good just within my Instagram of like, I don't post things because I'm hoping people like it. You know, the algorithm's all thrown off right now. People are all over the place <laughs> right now. I'm posting things because I have something to say, you know, um, and it was probably 90% of it, of it was for me and 5% was for another person. And if the 5% interact with it, great. If not still 95 of it was for me. And so I'm at this place where it's like, I don't, I'm not seeking a lot of approval um, from people. I don't know, at least like from my family and and for the people who I know and love who I'm, who I hope to, um, you know, achieve a certain level of, of respect, you know, and honor back to sure. But not, for the people who are, you know, I feel like are in my space. Like I'm doing that because I have something to say, not because I'm trying to take something from you or get something from you, which is really interesting. Being a performer, I just like being in a room full of people um, 
who I can kind of let pause for a second you know um I like being in a a room full of people who might cry a little bit because some part of my story um in the words that I'm saying is triggering a whole internal work inside of them and that's not even triggering but hopefully um releasing um some internal work inside of them and and that's beautiful um and I feel like those moments have very little to do with 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 me in itself, you know, I'm just a tool for them in that moment. And so a lot of it comes down to, um, the, the acknowledging the, yeah, of it, um, and not letting the, butt diminish it, but how can I interlace those things? Um, so that it's more a, yeah. And which is like a improv thing of a yes. And, um, and not a yes, but, um, because the, butt puts something in there that you're like, Ooh, you're waiting, you know, when someone's like, yeah, you did a great job and everything, but, you know, um, and so it's like, yes. And I think that's, I just, that is now a revelation I just received. So the yes and, and not a yes, but <laughs> it's kind of where I think I'm headed. Yeah. Love it. So this is a great segue to the phenomenal somersault swimsuit campaign. <laughs> yeah. That you did. And I loved watching, following you on social. And you're like, I'm getting flown overseas to put on a bathing suit. (laughs) Um, And I I, I mean, which was amazing. I I would love for you to share the burdens that you navigated internally, but Mm -hmm. also externally, like culture's view of size and race and gender. Talk, Talk a little bit more about that. When that first started, it was through Instagram, you know, and um, a company based in Canada was like, hey, can we send you some swimsuits? And I was like, sure. And I'd been somewhat acclimated with with sponsor stuff at that point in time. And so you usually send them your selects and they send you one or two or whatever they have more of in their warehouse or however that works. And and they send you the one or two suits. My first box from them was like a like a box box and I was like this is really what is this box and it was every swimsuit I had said I kind of liked you know and I was like what what am I gonna do with all these swimsuits I don't get in the water I don't swim I like to go to the beach I love to go to pools and things like that but sit in the sun and read and take a nap um I'll be in a swimsuit but probably like a swimsuit top and like a maxi skirt because that's just how I am and so I'm like, what am I going to do with all these swimsuits? So I took both pictures in them and I posted them because they sent them to me. And then I did one more campaign like that with them. And then that next year they were like, hey, actually, can you come with us to our first campaign? Um, shoot, it's in um, Portugal. And I was like, this is a scam. Like I was like, this is not, this is not real. I sent the email. Um, at the time I did have an agency who had found me on um, a casting a website and I thought that was a scam too, but they ended up being real as well. And so I had an agent at the time for, for modeling acting. So I was like, can you check this out to see if it's like real? And they're like, yeah, it looks good. Let us know if you want to um, want to punch us in. And I was like, no, because I will get less money. So I got it. It's fine. You know? And so I was like, sure. Yeah. So I sent them my password, all this stuff. And I was like, this could be, like I could be going to die in Portugal and I kind of want to take that risk, I think. And so I get there, I get picked up from this sweet man in a white van. I was like, oh, this is for sure. This is for sure how it goes. I It's dark. We are driving a dirt road <laughs> and we pull up to this house and there's like this big burly um, French Canadian van outside. And I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely how, how I go. I should probably drop my pin, but my parents know. And they had known I was out there and then I get in and they're like, Ariel's here, Ariel's here. Cause they couldn't pronounce my name entirely. And they're like, okay, put your stuff down. And they're like speaking in French, speaking in English, like back and forth, back and forth. And they're like, are you hungry? And, and we eat and we share our first meal together. And they're like red or white because it wasn't, if you want wine, it was, you're going to drink wine. And I was like, red, I guess I'm like drugged on Dramamine because I can't fly without it. And I'm sitting there and I'm eating with them and they're still talking in and out of, you know, French and English. And they're like, guys, we have an English person here speaking, speaking English. And so we're sitting there and I was just so baffled in that moment because I was like, you're trusting me and my body to carry out your product that you're trying to sell. So you're, you're trusting, you're trusting what I can do, which is baffling to me because 
this is new territory for me. I did three campaigns with them, Portugal, Italy, um, and Cancun, Mexico. And I love them. They are my favorite people. If I could fly my makeup artists out for my own makeup for my wedding, I would, I adore them. <laughs> um, and the last shoot was one of the hardest ones uh, for me because we were in Italy and I was like, bread, wine, pasta, bread, wine, pasta, cheese, bread, wine, pasta, just on loop every day. And I was like, how am I going to model swimsuits and all you're feeding me is carbohydrates. So I tried to have this weird balance of like, how do I not eat too much and also model well, but also how do I eat well so that it can work because that's what I'm doing. And and I mm. went in this weird loop and I, I expressed, you know, to the director that I was not in a great place with my body. And she was like, really? She was like, I love your body. That's why, you know, we keep hiring you. And she looks so shocked and so hurt, you know, um, that I would have said that um, about myself in that moment. And I was like, I had to take a step back and I'm like, I'm here because my body as is, um, is not just valued monetarily because it really was, but also just valued. Um, they valued my company. They valued who I was. Um, and they valued, you know, how I physically was built and shaped just naturally. And that was such a crazy reality to sit in. And I modeled with two other girls who were smaller um, and and had abs and I did not, you know, I was the curvier, softer one. And, um, and, and really wrestling with that, you know, every day. And so it was like, I'm here, I'm modeling, but they're still like, that again, that that voice of like, yeah, but you're the plus one, you know, you're the curvy one. Um, and 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 again, turning that to a yes, and I have hips and they're pretty hot apparently because they want to put them in a swimsuit, you know. And so finding <laughs> that like switch, but that work was still happening to me every day of like trying on a new suit, and I'm like, oh wow, this is really busty, or this is not high waisted, so it's not covering, you know, um, my little, my little kangaroo pouch. And so like navigating through those things every day was like, okay, but you're hot, you're cute, you're beautiful. Yeah. And you're valuable and you belong here. That is what it really comes down to. Of like you belong in this moment and you belong here, but I had to do that work every day while being out there with them. Your mantra during that season was you belong. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And not even like you're attractive too, or, or you're talented as a modeling too, because I was like, I was barely every shoot I did with them. They would always comment on, you're getting so much more confident or you're getting, and I was like, yeah, I know because I'm getting used to being, you know, in bikinis. I never owned a bikini in my life. So they would comment on my growth, which was really cool. And I really was like, okay, I am, I'm doing well, but it was all new territory. And so I had to remind myself of like, yeah, this is new to you. Yeah, you may not feel as attractive, but at the end of the day, regardless, 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 you belong here too. You belong here. And and did the yeah, but whisper then relax when you would? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I wow. think that's when it really turned into the yes and conversation or not even a and just yes. You know, yes. I think that's where, where, where the period, you know, when you add commas to things, there's more space for it to continue, but like, no, yes, you belong, you belong. Yes. That's it. You know, um, and navigating that. That's that, that mantra is so powerful because belonging is, I often say belonging is oxygen for our yeah. soul. And when we know we can breathe, right. We're not mm. going to panic. And just such a powerful way of leading your system mm. when it's wondering, are we safe? Is this okay? Right. Right. Um, that's powerful. And I want to bring up a quote that I've, I've heard you say this and you've written it. Um, mm. and it's powerful to me and it, and I appreciate it a lot, but I want to get, I want you to unpack it is yeah. curved body, curved bodies are not societal hazards. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I wrote this one specifically after Nike released, um, their first, uh, curve, uh, mannequin, um, which, oh, what a shocker, everyone, a normal size body. <laughs> wearing clothes <laughs> what a concept you know and so but people freaked out and there was this whole article written about how this mannequin was promoting unhealthy bodies how this mannequin shouldn't be a nike because it's not like she's working out how this body and of course it hit this wave of 
like we were just that was like pivot of of people being more open to curve or 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 normal bodies you know as models and um and and plus bodies and so it was like what are you talking about i work like and for me it's like i genuinely work out three four five times you know a week but my body is going to interpret that the way my body knows how and i will still have hips and i will still have thick you know thick thighs and things like that and so it was like you can't just say that this body type is creating um an unhealthy standard and so that's what the conversation was that this body was a health hazard and it was causing other people to think that this body was healthy when it's not it's a healthy hazard and so I wrote that quote. I think I wrote a series because I was like really bothered and I don't get angry very often. Um, it's like not an emotion I navigate well through. And so I usually just get upset and cry. And so, but that week I was like mad. And so I wrote those pieces. I think I wrote three or four almost every day after. And then I was like, okay, guys, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm officially done, but I needed to say those things. And that was the biggest part of it of like, no, my body is not an unhealthy hazard. And I had had a person shortly before that um, being reposted on um, on a health Instagram in a swimsuit. And someone had commented like, you're a health magazine. Why are you promoting unhealthy bodies? Mm. This girl is obese. Um, she's not healthy, yada, yada, yada. And it was like this whole thing. Um, and that is where my, she kept asking me what my BMI was, what my BMI was. Ugh. I bet if you tell me your BMI, you're not actually as healthy as you think you are. And so I took that and I turned it into the hashtag that I have in my bio, which is beautifully made with intention. Um, instead of body mass index of like, what are, what are you made of? I'm made of um, intention. Um, I'm made beautifully. Um, and I'm beautifully made with intention. That's what I'm made of. That's what I'm built of. And so kind of tag teaming those two conversations of like, no, my body is not a health hazard. I can't eat fast food because I'm allergic to <laughs> a lot of it. So it's like, I don't eat a whole lot of unhealthy stuff because I can't stomach it. This body is just what it is, you know? And that doesn't mean it's unhealthy. It's mine. You know, it's healthy for me. It may not help be healthy for you, um, but it's healthy for me. And and then switching that around and like, no, I'm beautifully made with intention. That's what I'm built of. And that's all you need to know that I'm built of. And I'm not promoting unhealthy health standards because I'm being myself. Um, if you want to work out, let's work out. You know, like I'm down. If you want a salad, let's go. I love salads, you know? So it's just like this weird preconceived <laughs> judgment and bias that we have that just does not fall correctly at all. Well, there's a lot of pain and a lot invested in us hating our bodies. A lot of money is made. A mm -hmm. lot of power is kept by us mm. hating our bodies mm. and being at war and afraid of bodies that are not of one archetype. Mm -hmm. And so beautifully made with intention is the only BMI yeah. that I will honor. <laughs> and, um, and in the 90s, the BMI number changed overnight. Wow. And so millions more people were considered quote unquote obese. And the people right. on the board that changed the BMI were people that represent the biggest diet programs mm. that we see in all the commercials. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, and we've bought into this. And okay. so, but it's a force to reckon with. It's, it's one thing to say, I call BS to it. Right. But then in those quiet places about the threat to our belonging. Right. Right. You know, that's the work. So I thank you for sharing that. And mm. I will say anger is a tough emotion, especially for women to rumble with, but righteous <laughs> anger suits you. Ooh, and I love what, you, you. what the art that you make <laughs> when you are have righteous anger coming out. It's yeah. holy and necessary. So um, I want to you've identified a lot of these different burdens, the not enough burdens, the the yeah, but mm -hmm. burdens that you, you know, how has writing your poetry and your powerful essays and your spoken word, how has those burdens led to you making that art? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't, you know, I say this, people are like, where do, where you, you know, you do body positivity. Where does that come from? Or, or are you like, you're a writer. Where does that come from? And I'm like, it usually comes from 
not being those things, you know? Um, it usually, <laughs> you know, like, confidence comes from, at one point in time, I wasn't confident, you know? Um, being a writer and being a creative means at some point in time, I really ran, you know, from that part of me. Um, but at the same time, I've, I've always written. I've always processed the world and my healing and faith and, and everything in between best through writing it out. Um, I'm a verbal, internal and written processor. Like I have to do all three um, in order for me to feel like I've come to a resolve or I've come to a fullness with something. If I don't write it down, it means I'm still navigating it. And it's funny because mm. like in this season right now, everybody's like, oh, I can't wait to see what you write. I can't wait to see you. And I've been like writing little poems, but I haven't sat and read a full, you know, two, three minute poem because I'm still very much so processing what's happening in my spirit and what's happening in my mind right now. And so unless I've written it down, um, I haven't come to a full healing. I haven't come to a resolve with it. And so, I mean, the writing for me, I think art in general is extremely powerful and extremely healing. Um, and if we can just put things down to paper, um, I genuinely, when I finish a poem, I like have one of two responses. I have like a exhale response of like, oh man, because I feel like I do carry these words on me um, and with me. And so when I release them, it's like this actual physical release. And then twofold, it's like, oh man, I was like really good. I'm really excited to share this, you know? So those are the two, <laughs> the two responses I get. Um, or the third one, I guess, is like, this is not finished, but I'm glad I put down what I put down. Um, and, and so there's always like an actual chemical or physical response that I get from, from spilling. I don't often say writing, but from spilling these poems, um, Mm. that I have, because it really is like a spilling and I rarely spend more than one sitting on a piece. It's usually just like, and there it is, like it's done. Um, it's out and, I don't edit them a whole lot because I, I really do believe there was something about that initial spill um, that is permanent, um, if you will, unless I'm working on a, on a paid project, then I'll go and edit and give drafts and things like that. But for my own personal pieces, I very rarely go back and look at them just because I don't want to um, over perfect um, something that could be considered perfect just because it was existed in the first place. Um and, and so, yeah, there's always a healing response. Like I have to write it down. Otherwise I am not fully done processing yet. That's powerful. Yeah. And is there something that you'd love to share? I'd love to hear you share a poem. Oh you yeah. Have nearby. Um, well, the one I, I was, I've been thinking about is this concept of, um, of like birthing something. My sister is pregnant. She's due in June. And this is like first baby for our whole family. And it's very exciting. Um, So I'm like, got to be an auntie. And it was just such a wild time to think about her um, carrying something right now. And so she had posted a video on Sunday of, of music playing. And her, her belly was just like moving. Like the baby was just kicking and moving and dancing. And I just started bawling watching this because for me, it was like, okay, she's physically carrying life right now in this moment. And mm-hmm. hopefully by the time she gives, you know, birth, which is around June or so, hopefully some of this stuff has kind of narrowed down um, or hushed a little bit. And she will have physically birthed something at the end of this. And I had this little revelation of like, we're, we're all birthing something at the end of this. Mm. Um and any season that we find ourselves in, um, we're in it because at the end of that, we're supposed to give something. We're supposed to change something. We're supposed to have something, whether that's, um, you know, transformation, whether that's a revelation, whether that's a healing, whether that's an acknowledgement of something. And so I wrote, um, it is here that we will birth the change that we have been destined for as the concepts of time and plans mold themselves into simply existing we will not see the light the same we will not hold one another the same may we learn that the individuality of today is not the collective of tomorrow may we acknowledge this unknown to shift our perspective of what we do know that love is still here that grace is still here that joy is still here, that none of this is in vain, that we can still make something out of this pain time and time again. Um, And I think for me, like I had teletherapy 
like a week or so ago. And in that week, I was okay. You know, I was still working, I was still productive and things like that. And she was like, you seem good. I was like, yeah. I mean, I'm good, you know, like I'm, I'm fine right now, you know, and, and it was like, at the same time, I'm a freelancer. So this initial change and, and transformation, that stuff happens to me two, three times a year, if not more, you know, and I freak out in that initial moment. And then I adjust because, okay, but this is what my hands are holding right now. So what do I do with it? Um, and, and then how do I birth something out of this writing more, getting off Instagram more, you know, like whatever that is. And so and um, this concept of of pain, this concept of growth, I was like, we can still make something of this, um, even if it's just, and this is pain, and that's what we made of it, or this is pain, and I can do something with it. Um, and I'm kind of always been a silver lining person. Um, I usually write or spill poems that are like, I'm in this crap space right now, but I, how can I like, kind of, as you pro- said, prophetically go to where it's going to be good. Um, and and live there as a as a speck of hope to look forward to, um, but also stay in this present space at the same time and grasp what I need to grasp here, um, and then birth what I need to birth at the end of all that. Um, that's kind of where where that stemmed from. I love that. I think the the bandwidth that that takes to be in the pain <laughs> yet hold the hope flag at the same time. Yeah. That is, that's how we need to lead ourselves and others. And we don't, we don't want to bypass the pain and just be Pollyanna about the hope. Right. And if we stay, stay in the deep end of pain without right. any hope, then life gets bleak mm-hmm. and feels ho- hopeless. Mm-hmm. So I love that bridge um, that you created. And I love that you just said, do something with your pain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be right away. Yeah. <laughs> but just that action and that agency keeps mm-hmm. us from feeling stuck and frozen, even physically. Yeah in it. And so from a nervous system, neuropsychological perspective, that just that resonates with me mm-hmm. too. That is, that is so powerful. Thank you, Ariel, for doing yeah. something with your pain. Yeah, thank, you. thank you for showing up. Thank you for your light and your leadership mm-hmm. and your voice. And I'm honored to have been a recipient of it on several occasions. So thank you, thank you so much for your time. How can people find you if they want to follow you, yeah. um, experience your beautiful words. How can people connect with you? Yeah, everything is Ariel Astoria. So that's A-R-I-E-L-L-E and then Astoria with the E-S-T-O-R-I-A. That's my website, which I have like photos and videos and um, and different shop products that you can buy. I have two books of poetry. Those are on Amazon. You can also find them on my website. I'm on Spotify and iTunes as well if you want some poetry to music and a few other ones on SoundCloud if you're underground like that um, and then Twitter mm. as well. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. me today and um, look forward to seeing more art that you make. <laughs> Thank you. Hiding is a reflexive and protective response when we're scared. Hiding from the dangers of rejection that threaten our core desire for love and belonging often start at a young age. And then we continue to breathe in the toxic messages of the external standards and broken systems that tout what it means to be enough, to be attractive, to be worthy. So the mistakes are not just mistakes. You become the mistake. And meaningful work gets crushed by the external metrics of the opinions of others. These messages become burdens our systems carry, weighing us down, clouding our ability to lead ourselves with courage and confidence. So we end up hiding from ourselves and curating beliefs in an image that eventually becomes exhausting to sustain. Protecting ourselves through hiding often shows up in our relationship with our body and our overall sense of image, and especially the number of metrics we've achieved. Without loving ourselves, we can't lead ourselves well. And then we end up choosing hate towards our bodies and our stories. We end up choosing exhaustion in search of value. And we end up choosing likes and follows while sacrificing integrity and substance. But being able to receive love is foundational to being able to love and lead others well. And this means moving through discomfort by feeling through it instead of letting the protectors fueled by fear hide your humanity. Our relationship with our body impacts how we show up in the world and how we listen to its physical and emotional wisdom it's sharing with us. Daring to shine your Imago Day in all its glory instead of dehumanizing your sacredness and that of others is much needed medicine 
and much needed love. I am so grateful Arielle chose to stop hiding her body and her struggles with worthiness and show up with the force of love and leadership that makes every space she is in more empowered. She has infected our world for the greater good and inspires us to follow her lead and do the same. So how is your relationship with your body impacting how you lead and love yourself and others? And where do you need to stop hiding in your life and show more love to yourself and others? Never ever forget how much you're needed to show up in your truth, flaws and all. And I know that sounds really easy to say. Well, it's easy for me to say, but I know living that it is a beast. And yet we're all a force to be reckoned with when we're anchored by our belief of our worthiness for love and belonging. No matter the fall, no matter the criticism, as harsh as it may be, choosing to give and receive love well, and therefore lead well, is one of the most subversive actions we can take in a hurting world. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. Make sure you follow Ariel Astoria on Instagram and get ready to feel the love, be inspired, and be challenged. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at RebeccaChing.com. 